A last-minute coalition deal appears to have ended the 12-year-long reign of Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu just days after he presided over another 11-day-long war or massacre of Palestinians in Gaza. But the man set to replace him is even more right-wing, and the new coalition partners are united around only one issue, getting rid of Netanyahu. Meanwhile, the resistance of the Palestinian people is intensifying and global support for their cause is growing. We need a new system. We need a new society. We need to demand that which may have sounded impossible even a few weeks ago, but is not only realizable, but an imperative necessity. Welcome to The Real Story on The Socialist Program. I'm your host, Brian Becker, and I'm joined by Miko Pellad. Miko is an activist and the author of several books, including The General's Son, Journey of an Israeli in Palestine, and the book Injustice, The Story of the Holy Land Foundation 5. Miko, welcome to the show. It's good to be with you, Brian. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much for joining us. I want to talk to you about what it means for Netanyahu to no longer be the head of state in Israel and what it means for the other people who will take his place, what that means. We also want to put it into the context of the recent conflict, the 11-day massacre, and also into the global context of how support for the Palestinian people is growing so dramatically, including right here in the United States. But let's just start with the change in the Israeli government. Benjamin Netanyahu has been prime minister for a long time, the dominant figure certainly in Israeli politics. Anyway, what's your take? I would say that it's too soon to uh, lament his or, or celebrate his passing. He's not done being prime minister yet. This new patchwork of parties that is calling itself a coalition is still short of the 61 majority that they need. It's still not clear if and when they will be able to see if they actually can get a vote in the chamber because there's an issue with the Speaker of the House and the replacement of the Speaker of the House. There are lots of tiny little details that are still need to be ironed out before Netanyahu leaves. And he's putting his full political weight, which is not inconsiderable to fracture this very strange patchwork of political parties that are united, like you said, by only one thing, which is to get rid of him. And then the actual coalition itself, in terms of their political agenda, is going to be led by a man who is absolutely dedicated to the ethnic cleansing and the expansion of settlements in the West Bank and, of course, all other parts of Palestine, and a Palestinian political party and other kind of left Zionist parties that still believe in peace with the Palestinians. So there's a long way to go before Netanyahu is out, if he indeed ends up being ousted. Let's talk about the strange bedfellows, the two principal parts of the opposition where they would, and let's go over the personalities, including Naftali Bennett, who would, if the arrangement goes through as predicted, and again, you're suggesting maybe the predictions are premature, he would be prime minister for the first two years and then he would be replaced by a leader of the second party. Just talk about who they are. Well, to begin with, we have to understand that this is an absolutely absurd proposition. It's never happened before. It's unprecedented. 
Naftali Bennett comes to the table with six seats in the house. The only reason he's even in this position is because he was invited to this coalition by Yair Lapid, who heads the second largest party in the chamber in the Knesset, with 17 seats. Now, normally that guy, if he manages to put together a coalition, becomes prime minister. He has given that up. He has given that up for the first two years, and he's giving it to the guy with six seats just to have this coalition come through. And this guy is his ideological and political nemesis. It's an absolutely absurd reality. Imagine Joe Biden being elected and then asking Donald Trump to be president for the first two years. It's that absurd. But when everybody's motivated by one thing, which is to unseat Netanyahu, then sure, Naftali Bennett made a very smart move. Again, now, within that coalition, another thing that I believe is going to be a serious problem for them and indeed may cause them to fall apart is the fact that there is another unprecedented move. They're relying part on the votes of a Palestinian party. Now, the Palestinian party, their constituents are the Palestinian citizens of Israel. Naftali Bennett wants to take away more of their rights Naftali Bennett does not believe in allowing, for example, the some 200,000 Palestinian citizens of Israel who live in the south, in the Nakab, that their villages should be recognized, that they should have access to water and land and roads and any kind of rights. And this guy, the Palestinian, these are his constituents. So he wants to get all these deals for them. Naftali Bennett wants to prevent all of that. Again, Naftali Bennett was the head of the settler movement in the West Bank. These are absurd bedfellows, you know. And on top of that, they get Netanyahu breathing down their throat, doing everything he possibly can. Now, in the history of Israeli politics, anyone who ever had to rely on what they call the Arab vote, even if it's just by abstention, even if they just abstain and not vote against them, is just a stain that they can never remove. And they've always done everything they could to avoid that, even at the expense of giving up power. So... It's very, very strange reality there right now. And again, I think Netanyahu is going to benefit from this. I don't see him leaving anytime soon. Interesting. So the, the Palestinian, the Arab party, is it the Ram party? Yes, they actually represent the Islamist movement in Palestine, in 1948 Palestine. So among the Palestinian citizens of Israel. So this coalition, which is led by Naftali Bennett, at least for the first two years, even though he has only six seats in the Knesset, and Bennett is you know, committed to the complete ethnic cleansing of Arab and Palestinian people from their homes and their villages, they'd be in a coalition with an Arab party, uh, a Palestinian party, the Ram party, an Islamicist political party, just days after this 11-day-long war, which included... Arab and Palestinian people within Israel proper, I'm using air quotes, were involved in also both insurgency, uprising, and also fending for themselves against racist Zionist mobs. Yeah, how would that play within the Palestinian community? Would it, because it would be the first time that an Arab party was allowed into such a coalition, it would be acceptable? I mean, you can read it both ways. I mean, you know, another Palestinian citizen of Israel who's in another party, in the Merits Party, you know, she was interviewed today and she said, you know, for the first time we have eight members of Knesset and we are, you know, in the coalition. And I'm thinking, well, this is nothing to be proud of, you know. 
Mansur Abbas, as far as I know, is afraid to leave his home without protection because everybody hates him. He's basically a turncoat. Now, there are people within that community that think, hey, yeah, you know what, maybe we can get a little something here and there and it's worth it. You know, I was just there. I just got back last night. This is the first time the Palestinian citizens of Israel are not only afraid of the authorities, but afraid of walking down the street. They're afraid of mobs. They're afraid of lynching. I know people who work in hospitals in very important jobs, you know, among Israelis and are afraid to go to work. You know, women who are covered, who wear hijab, Palestinian women are afraid to go to work. Men are worried about the fact that, you know, they have an accent. They speak with an Arabic accent when they speak Hebrew, and it's very easily recognizable. And they're driving their cars, and what we've seen over the last two weeks, and, you know, typically what will happen is Israeli mobs will lynch them, and then they get arrested. The Palestinians will get arrested, and then they're thrown. And again, I was just at a courthouse maybe a week ago in Bersabah, in the Nakab, in the south, where Palestinians were, you know, they're being held and there was a hearing whether or not to release them or hold them longer because the authorities, particularly the secret police, the Shabak, want to keep them longer to interrogate them. So all this is happening and this guy now wants to jump into a coalition, not just with Netanyahu, which is horrifying enough, but with Naftali Bennett, who is like Netanyahu, the upgraded version, really, when you think about it in every way, politically, and is a settler. He comes with a settler movement. He's the first Israeli prime minister, you know, wearing a yarmulke, wearing a kippah, and coming from that part of the Zionist movement. You know, it's very hard to imagine that this could succeed. And all the promises they gave Mansour Abbas, you know, initially, supposedly for his constituent, recognizing some of the unrecognized villages and, and funding and all and preventing some of the racist laws against Palestinians who build and so on, th- th- those are going to go by the wayside. They're not going to keep any other promises. It's absolutely clear that they're not. So it's very hard to imagine that anything good can come out of this other than, I mean, anything good at all. It will succeed if Naftali Bennett is really smarter than Netanyahu somehow and can really keep this coalition together. And explain for our audience that doesn't know the internal Israeli politics, why would Lapid, who has 17 votes in the Knesset, who would pull the government together, who would be clearly the leading party within this eight-party, or I think it's eight-party coalition, why would he feel compelled to choose Naftali Bennett, out-and-out extreme racist, settler with only six votes in Knesset. What's the political dynamic here that would have, as you put it, it would be like Joe Biden winning and then having Donald Trump be president for the first two years. What's causing that? Only one thing. It was the only way that he could put together a coalition to oust Netanyahu. He had no choice, but it's never happened. you know. And, and I'm sure that that's what Bennett said. If you let me be the prime minister first for two years, you can have my votes. And in a move that is actually quite brilliant, there is actually a coalition of right-wing parties that are so frantically anti-Netanyahu that they joined with Yair Lapid and this, you know, what is considered to be a center-left government, a coalition, they already secured all the most important economic portfolios in the government, treasury and uh, agriculture and everything has to do with land and money and water they control and economics and the selection of judges, which to them is very important. The right wing, just like here, they want to control which kind of judges are being nominated, particularly to the high court, the Supreme Court. 
I've never seen anything like this happen. It's not anything anybody could have anticipated. And I think Lapid likes this kind of image of being kind of the mature person, putting the good of the country ahead of his own ambitions. But what he did basically is he's given Naftali Bennett an opportunity to do anything he wants, to be the most powerful person in the country for two years, and then hope that he will respect this agreement in which they have to, you know, he allows Lapid to come in and be prime minister. But by, you know, two years in politics is a long time anywhere. Two years in Israeli politics is a lifetime. So all kinds of things can happen. And actually, I think this is kind of a laundering of Naftali Bennett an opportunity for him to repair his image as this kind of a racist right-wing settler and build himself as a statesman, you know? And that's very dangerous because the kind of statesman that he is going to be is just a horrifying thought. You know, they're already talked about the annexation plan of Area C in the West Bank during the Trump administration. And then Netanyahu put it to rest a little bit because he made, he had these normalization agreements with all these Arab countries in the Gulf. Now they're bringing it back, but they just changed the name. They call it supervision of Area C, not annexation, but it's basically annexation. So all of these left-wing and center-left parties, supposedly Zionist parties, are going and following Naftali Bennett. They're going to allow him to do all these things. Like I said, this is, it makes no sense. It's unprecedented. I have very, very little doubt that Netanyahu is going to come out ahead of this. So for American audience, it would be like, Think back to David Duke in 1992, the Grand Wizard of the KKK. He took off his white robes and he ran as a Republican for governor and he almost won. But it was the same David Duke. And the oddity here is that the center-left Zionist parties are actually now willing, in order to get rid of Netanyahu, to support such a person as the Prime Minister of Israel for the next two years. The New York Times seems to be pretty excited Netanyahu rivals agree on Israeli coalition to oust him. And then the first paragraph or two, Miko, I'm going to read to you and get your comment. Israeli opposition parties announced on Wednesday that they had reached a coalition agreement to form a government and oust Benjamin Netanyahu, blah, blah, blah. The announcement could lead to the easing of a political impasse that has produced four elections in two years and left Israel without a stable government or a state budget. If Parliament ratifies the fragile agreement in a confidence vote in the coming days, it will bring down the curtain, if only for an intermission, on the premiership of a leader who has defined contemporary Israel more than any other. Anyway, Miko Pallad, your response to the Times. Well, you know, all this hyperbole and drama aside, first of all, like I said, it's too early to make any kind of announcement, number one. Uh, number two, they're right. There hasn't been a budget. So the Israeli government, the state has been functioning without a budget without, you know, for several years now, because all these elections and the whole political process has really come to a standstill. The Zionist perception right now, or the Zionist, you know, state of mind is that there are no Palestinians. So they talk about the economy, about budgets, about security, about water, about social issues, about poverty. They only talk about the Jewish population. Now, more than half of the population that is governed by the state of Israel are Palestinians. Their needs, their conditions, their rights, the level of their poverty, none of that is being addressed, and it's far more severe than anything Israelis are experiencing. So if we're talking about poverty, the poverty levels among Palestinians are far higher, whether they're Israeli citizens or whether they are not, you know, because there's all kinds of status that Israel has given Palestinians. 
is far worse. Of course, they have very few rights, even the ones who have citizenship. Access to water, access to medical care, under normal circumstances, forget the bombing and forget, you know, the lynching. I'm just talking about normal circumstances, access to roads, access to education. All of that is practically denied Palestinians by the state. So all the New York Times is looking at is through this very narrow, very myopic, you know, Zionist perspective. They're completely ignoring more than half of the population. We're talking about millions and millions of people. Some of them are citizens of Israel. Some of them live in an open-air prison in Gaza and are being bombed on a regular basis and slaughtered. Some live without rights in other part of Palestine. And then there's another five and a half million who live in refugee camps are not even allowed to return, languishing in camps. And none of this is being mentioned as though they don't exist. The big mistake here is that nobody's paying attention to the bigger picture. Everybody's focusing on this gossip nonsense of Netanyahu, yes, Netanyahu, no, and not saying, well, wait a minute, there's a much, much bigger picture here. There's a much more severe situation here. It's a cinder block. I mean, they're sitting on a barrel of explosives. I mean, Netanyahu lit the match over the last few weeks and we saw what happens. We haven't even begun to see what, you know, how bad this can be. And, you know, we're coming on the anniversary of this 1967 war. And some of the images that we saw over the last few weeks during this uprising were flames around the Al-Aqsa Mosque and Israelis dancing in the plaza just below in front of the Western Wall. You know, the most iconic sentence and the most iconic images out of the 1967 war is the taking of what they call the Temple Mount in the old city of Jerusalem. The most iconic sentence is the commander of the brigade that took the old city where he says the Temple Mount is in our hands. And the sense that there has to be a Jewish, some kind of a Jewish, I don't know, building structure there that replaces the Al-Aqsa and the Golden Dome of the Dome of the Rock. It's like a national yearning among Israelis. It has nothing to do with religion. And it's very, very dangerous because Naftali Bennett is precisely the kind of guy that would want to see this happen under his watch. So we may very well be facing a catastrophe that we can't even imagine where this you know, ancient mosque, this iconic image of Jerusalem, Alexa and the Golden Dome are destroyed and replaced with some kind of a, you know, so-called Jewish temple. This is, you know, the things that are coming up may well be catastrophic even beyond our imagination. Miko, you've been on the old show loud and clear numerous times, and I've asked you this question, but you're on the socialist program. We have a new audience, and most of our audience our young people, 80% probably under the age of 35. And I want them to just hear your story very quickly because you were born in Israel. I believe you were born in Jerusalem. And your father was an Israeli general. Your grandfather was a major figure. Just talk a little bit about your father and grandfather. And then also how you as a Jew, as an Israeli citizen, came to be such an advocate for the rights of the Palestinian people, a partner in the struggle to free Palestine. Yeah, sure. I'm glad to know that you've got such a young listenership. That's great. I think that the short version of the story is, as you said it, I come from a privileged Zionist Israeli family. You know, my entire family was involved in the founding and the creating and holding, you know, major, major office, major roles within the Zionist state. My dad, the general, I have the grandfather who you mentioned, signed the Declaration of Independence. I had an uncle, a great uncle, who was the president of the state and so on. So that was the environment in which I was raised, completely patriotic, completely Zionist. But 
having taken this journey, which I call the journey of an Israeli in Palestine, from the sphere of the privileged Israeli Zionist, where the water flows and the roads are paved and so on, into the sphere, and again, I'm paraphrasing uh, Franz Fanon, into the sphere of the oppressed and the occupied, and seeing the disparity and seeing the racism and seeing the apartheid, not as a term, not as in some kind of ideology, but seeing the apartheid in actual real life as it materializes, as it affects people's day-to-day life, as it affects their children being arrested, detained and tortured and so on. You know, you have to make a call. You have to decide where your values lay and which way you're going to go. And I could not in good conscience continue to support Zionism or the state of Israel. And so then I'd be embarked on this other path. Miko, let's talk about what has happened with the most recent conflict. Uh, Here in the United States, you were there, but I can tell you as someone who's been an organizer of support activities for Palestine for many decades, including some of the biggest, starting in 2002 after the Israeli reinvasion of the West Bank, and then 2004, 2005, 2008, and nine, and then the last in 2014, where we had 50,000 people come together in front of the White House during the last Israeli massacre in Gaza. What was different this time was that it wasn't a demonstration in one or two cities. It was everywhere. The Arab, the Palestinian, but also joined by others, especially young black people coming out into the streets. This was six months after the nationwide uprising Black Lives Matter movement uprising against the killing of George Floyd and racism. It was so different. I think millions of people actually have been in the streets in the United States, in cities and towns, big and small. And it's also global. And also, as a consequence, the media narrative changed. The New York Times was, you know, at least portraying the Palestinian people in a victimized way as opposed to just simply being terrorists. I mean, it's a very limited label to be a victim only. But there was a degree of humanizing of the Palestinian people that didn't exist before. And even some members of Congress, not enough, and they weren't strong enough. But, you know, I would say probably for the first time, we're using the language that Israel is indeed an apartheid state on the floor of the House of Representatives. This is a change. And I wanted to, because you've been doing this for so long, writing about it, speaking about it, I want to get your assessment of where we are right now. I think what you described is, and actually I was very happy to hear that you were involved in some of the protests because that usually means big numbers. You're absolutely right in in what you just said. I mean, there's a change. And I'll tell you what I saw over there that demonstrated to me that there's change. You know, the Secretary of State Blinken was in Palestine. He was in Ramallah. And besides the usual meetings with, you know, authorities and the, the formalities, he met with four real, on-the-ground, actual Palestinian activists. One from Hebron, one from Gaza, one from Jerusalem, one from Jericho. The one from Hebron is a friend of mine, Issa Amro, who also runs one of the most effective grassroots resistance organizations in Palestine, Youth Against Settlements. And I met Issa immediately after the meeting in Hebron. I assumed it was going to be some kind of a handshake and maybe a photo op just to say, hey, you know what, whatever, you know, we know that you exist. This was a serious meeting. They all spoke. They spoke for 20, 25 minutes. They told Blinken exactly the types of things that they needs to hear. Isamra himself was heavily criticized by everyone from Breitbart to God knows who, people on the left and in Palestine too for taking the meeting. 
But it showed that there was, you know, if the Secretary of State initiates a meeting with actual Palestinians on the ground, you know, beyond the formalities of meeting with the PA and Mahmoud Abbas, this is unprecedented, you know. And it reminds me of something, just a quick story. You know, my dad, after he retired from the military in 1968, he uh, embarked on the second career, which was to try to bring peace between Israelis and Palestinians based on this, what we know today is a two-state solution. Him and a small group of Zionists, you know, it really dedicated their lives. And he would come to America for three decades and tell American, mostly Jews, but anyone who would listen, that America has got to stop giving Israel free money and free weapons. And he even called for sanctions in 1992 against the state of Israel because until it is committed to respecting international law, the rights of Palestinians, the rights of Palestinians to self-determination, and so on, he could not get a meeting with anyone. He never met any significant official. He, nobody would talk to him. Nobody would meet him. And this was a retired Israeli general who was a Zionist who just said, you know what, we need to think about the Palestinians in a certain limited context. Here we have the Secretary of State meeting with on-the-ground actual real activists who understand the problems, who understand the human rights issues, you know, who came prepared, who demanded that America, the United States government, recognize the definition of apartheid, which Human Rights Watch, and I expect Amnesty will probably come out with something similar soon. You know, they told him things the way, you know, the way things really, really are, and it was not some just, you know, formality of a photo op. This, I think, reflects change. Now, I may be wrong, but I think this is precisely the kind of opportunity that needs to be taken and then pushed as far as possible so that we get as much change as we can from this administration. Miko, last question, or yeah, it's a question, I mean, but it's framed in a particular context. The two-state solution that was a promise that never materialized and, and never was going to materialize, that's gone. There's going to be one state the Israelis hope that it will be an apartheid state. And by one state, I mean the state that controls the West Bank, Gaza, Jerusalem, etc. What do you think? I mean, what about the future of Zionism? Zionism is apartheid. Will there be one state? Will it be democratic, secular, free, or something else? Well, you know, the Naftali Bennett vision is obviously, like you said, the single apartheid state overall of Palestine, which is really what's been in existence for a very long time. I think if we do our job and we keep working as hard as we possibly can, there's absolutely an opportunity to establish a real democratic, liberated Palestine, decolonized Palestine with equal rights and the return of the refugees. That is absolutely a possibility. If and when that happens, it all depends on us as the people are out there talking, you know, being on the ground, protesting and doing everything we can to influence. We need to come to a point where American politicians not only support boycott and sanctions against Israel or BDS, but actually push for it and demand it. We need to come to a point where American politicians are embarrassed that they ever thought of being Zionists, that people understand that there should be zero tolerance to Zionism, just like there should be zero tolerance to anti-Semitism and all other forms of racism. That's exactly where we need to be pushing. And if I think we're successful, and again, it's up to us, we've got to work very hard to be successful. But if we do, then we absolutely, I believe, we'll see a free, a liberated, democratic Palestine with equal rights. 
I want to encourage everyone who's listening to this show to go to your website. It's mikopelled.com. That's M-I-K-O-P-E-L-E-D.com. You can join the Miko Pelled newsletter. Miko is an author. He's a writer. He's a speaker. You can find his books there. You can hear webinar series. If you want to reach out to Miko and see if he is available to come to your campus, to your high school, to your community, you can do it. Go to MikoPelled.com. You're listening to The Socialist Program. We will be back Tuesday. You've been listening to The Socialist Program with Brian Becker, where we bring you news and views about the world for those who want to change it. If you enjoyed the show, subscribe on your favorite podcast app and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. We can only continue our work bringing you high-quality news, analysis, and history with the support of our listeners. Connect with us and become a patron at patreon.com slash the socialist program and receive an invitation to participate in an exclusive monthly seminar with Brian Becker. Brian Becker.